Once more, good evening, everybody. Welcome to you. Uh, my name is Tim Harris, pastor at Woodburn Baptist Church. All of you joining us by means of audio or video podcast. We love you. Thanks for being with us. This is the second message in a new series entitled The End of Everything. We're going to go through the book of Revelation together. When I say go through the book of Revelation together, I, I mean that. However, uh, I'm not going to be able to preach every single verse of Revelation. I, I wish I could. I wish I was that gifted. I wish we had that kind of time together, but we are going to move through the book together. What you'll notice starting tonight is I'm going to take a big section, and, and Revelation is one of those books that is very well laid out. It's very structured, very organized, and it naturally falls into about seven sections. I'm going to take a big section, and I'm going to do one deep dive into that section, and then I'm going to sort of leave it to you then to, to read the rest of that section and, and take what we've talked about together and apply it uh, in, in your own reading and understanding. So this, th this evening, uh, coming off of this morning, I want us to take a look at the, at the next big section, which is um, the Spirit, uh, Jesus' uh, message to each of those seven churches that we talked about. And that starts in Revelation chapter 2. But, but to get ready for that, back up with me. Let's go back into Revelation chapter 1, where we were this morning. Uh, remember, the book of Revelation is an apocalypse. It's, it's a pulling back the curtain, revealing something that would be otherwise unseen. And what is it that the book of Revelation is showing us? It's Jesus. It's a revelation of Jesus. So we're always seeing Jesus. And that first vision of Jesus is striking and startling as John describes Jesus. Let's go back to that and see how it leads us forward into chapter 2. I'm going to start in chapter 1, verse 12. When I turned to see the voice, I saw seven gold lampstands, and standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. We talked about that this morning, that beautiful, amazing, overwhelming vision of Jesus. But the interesting thing is, where is Jesus? In this vision, he's located somewhere. Where is he? In the text, look down, people, look down into the Bible. Where is he? When I turned to see the voice, I saw first what? Verse 12, I saw seven gold lampstands, and standing in the middle of the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. Okay, so when, when, when Jesus is revealed in this first amazing revelation, the first vision of Jesus, Jesus is in a particular place. He is standing in the middle of seven golden lampstands. All right, now you're thinking that, and that exactly, Pastor Tim, is why I don't read Revelation. You know, what in the world are the seven golden lampstands? And then he's got in his hand what? Verse 16, in his right hand, he's got seven stars. You know, what, what is that? And right there, a lot of people just stop. They stop reading that they feel like it's getting confusing. It's getting just into some really deep weeds. Uh, what are the lampstands? Well, what are the stars? And, and honestly, again, go back to the text. The scripture tells you exactly what the lampstands are and exactly what the stars are. So go back with me. Verse 20. This is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the 
angels of the seven churches. Now, the Greek word there is, is, is angelos. It means messenger. So the seven stars are the messengers, the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So where is Jesus when he's revealed in the book of Revelation, this first vision? Where is he? He's standing in the middle of the seven churches. He's with his churches. And what's in his hand? Yeah, the, the stars which represent the, the angels, the messengers of the seven churches. Now, what do you think the angel of each church is? What do you think that represents? The angel, the messenger? Now, some people say pastor, but then if you know any pastors personally, you think angel, pastor? No, it can't be that. It, it, it can't be that. Honestly, we don't know exactly. It, it, it could be pastor, the messenger of the church. But however, in the book of Revelation, there are, are many angels, and typically angel means angel. Some people believe that, that perhaps in the heavenly court, or, or, or from God's view of things, each church has like a spiritual representative. Like we might have an angel, the Woodburn Baptist Church angel, that's sort of our angel, maybe, maybe like a guardian angel or just a representative or some poor angel that got assigned to us. But, but can you imagine the possibility that, that we might have that spiritual emissary, that spiritual representative, that spiritual uh, protector on the other side? Maybe the, the church has an angel? Is it possible? What do you think our angel looks like? What would the Woodburn Baptist Church angel look like? What do you say, Tim? Bib overalls. Tim says. That came from the redneck section. Let, let, let that be noted. Yeah. Bib overalls? Yeah. What else? What do you think? Our angel. You think our angel would look more like Evelyn Balance? Yeah. One of the matriarchs, one of the wonderful ladies of our church. Yeah. I, I don't know. But the idea is that Christ is with his church. Christ holds the churches in his hands. He is there in, in the lampstands. And this is pretty amazing, especially as we get into what follows, as Jesus has a particular message for each of these seven churches. Because as it turns out, one or two of these churches are really on fire. One or two of these churches are, are amazing churches that are fighting and spreading the gospel and absolutely standing strong in the faith. But then you got some real turkeys in here. We have a church, you know, the, the, the church in Sardis, chapter 3, the only thing Jesus has to say for that church is, you know what, you probably look alive to some people, but I know you're dead. That's Jesus talking to the church in Sardis. You probably look alive, I think you had church last Sunday, but, but no matter what anybody else says, I know you're dead. Another church, Laodicea, do you remember Laodicea? What's the deal with the church there? What does Jesus say about the church in Laodicea? You kind of make me want to puke. That's Jesus talking to the church, and he says, you know, there are some things about you that, that kind of turn my stomach. You kind of make me want to throw up in my mouth. Yeah. That, that's what Jesus says. So understand, Jesus is still standing among the seven churches, those seven golden lampstands. That's amazing, because that means he's still standing right there beside the dead church, and he's still standing right there beside the lukewarm church that nearly makes him want to throw up, but yet he does not abandon his churches. He does not leave them. He does not take them out of his hand. You understand, no matter what happens, no matter what, the church is the Lord's. He, he is the one who builds it, he is the one who sustains it, and he will not leave his churches. 
I, I love that. So this revelation of Jesus, this very initial vision, is Jesus standing in the middle of his churches. As, as we said this morning, each of these churches is a real life place. Uh, we can often go to those cities even today. They're all in what is modern day Turkey. Modern-day Turkey is a fairly moderate country, but still a a predominantly Muslim country. So they haven't really allowed a lot of Christian archaeology. They're not very interested in letting us get in there and really find what we can in in Ephesus or Sardis or any of those ancient places. But understand, these are real places. They were there. They're still there in, in many instances. We know some things about these churches. But the important thing is that Jesus knows everything about these churches. And what follows in chapter 2, as we leave this first initial vision, we have actually literally seven particular individual messages to these churches. Now, these are personal. These are direct. Jesus knows the people. He knows their language. He knows everything about them. And these messages are right on target. But at the very same time, every single message says, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what Jesus says to the churches. So while it's a message specifically for Ephesus and specifically for Pergamum and specifically for Thyatira, understand anyone who has ears to hear is supposed to listen. So it's a message for these churches, but it's also a message for every church in every place in all times. Because when you read the messages of these churches, I guess at one time or another, Woodburn Baptist Church has been all of these churches. Let's take a look at it. Uh, I want you to pay attention first off to how John structures this because I think it'll help you read. Uh, John, in in writing the apocalypse, is extremely organized and, and extremely structured. And so we have seven letters, one to each church here, beginning in chapter two. Each message to each church breaks down into seven parts. Now, here's your job. Take out a pencil and paper right now, or write on the palm of your hand, or your pantyhose, or whatever you're going to write on. Write on something right now, okay? I want to give you up front the seven parts of each of these messages. Can you help me, Emily? Can we get it on the screen here? There we go. Uh, here we go. Seven parts. What you might think of these messages as is, is like a report card. It's like Jesus is giving each church their report card, and they're being graded or, or addressed in, in, in each of seven areas. So each of these messages has seven parts. The, the first I would simply call the address. And the address is the place where Jesus just addresses the church. He, he says what congregation he's talking to, to the church in Pergamum, to the church in Thyatira, to the church in Sardis. Each message begins first with an address. Second, each message includes, well, that's not what we wanted at all. Yeah, let's go back. Help me out, Emily. Starts with the address, and then it moves to number two, a description of the exalted Christ. Remember, what's being revealed here, what's being uh, exposed is, is this vision of Jesus. So every single message will have some description of the exalted Christ, and it's absolutely beautiful. To the church uh, in Pergamum, this is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. You understand? A description of the exalted Christ. And then next, words of praise. After Jesus says exactly what church he's talking to, and then a description of his exalted self, then words of praise. Something that the church can be commended for. 
Now understand, for example, in chapter 3, the message of the church in Sardis, there's nothing good to say to Sardis. There's nothing good to say, and words of praise are lacking there. All he can say is, man, man, this place is dead. This church is dead. There's nothing good to say, which in itself becomes amazing, but address, description of the exalted Christ, followed by words of praise, and then number four, words of weakness. After Jesus says, listen, I can say this about you, then he says, but I have this complaint against you. And in each instance, Jesus will follow these, th- this structure. He'll come up with words of weakness or what it is that the church must be corrected for. That's followed by, fifthly, words of warning. If you don't do this, this is what will happen. Each message includes a warning to the church. Y'all with me? Number six and number seven kind of go together because in Revelation they can switch places. But in each instance, there is a reward promise. To everyone who overcomes, you might say, I will give you this, uh, access to the tree of life or something like that. And then the refrain. What's a refrain, Rod? Yeah, a refrain is like the chorus. It's something that you sing over and over again. And each one of these messages ends with the refrain. And the refrain is... Let anyone who has ears listen to what the Spirit says to the churches, okay? So there are seven parts to each of these messages. So your job, because we're not going to do all seven tonight, we're going to do one. But your job this week is to read through Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3 and sort of outline the messages to each church following these seven parts. I think it'll help you break it down and understand it. Let's start tonight, though, with Ephesus. We'll just do these first seven verses. This is the first of the churches that is addressed here. Let's read it together. Read it with an eye toward these seven things. Pay attention. So write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you. You've lost your first love. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent... I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But but, but this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans, just as I do. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. We'll stop there. Let's talk about that. Ephesus was a very prominent seaport. It's a prominent city in what was ancient Turkey. Uh, I mentioned this morning, this is all taking place uh, in the very end of the first century, about the year 90, about the year 95. And who is the emperor of the Roman Empire? Do you remember his name? Domitian. Yeah, Domitian. I talked about him a little bit this morning. What do you remember about what I said about Domitian? He had a wart that he picked at. Yeah, I, I figured that's what you'd remember. <laughs> Honestly, it's true. 
It's true. We know this about him. He was just an, an ogre of a man, a, a brutal man, an ugly man with a wart in the middle of his forehead that he picked when you talked to him and he would make it bleed. I mean, ugh. Uh, however, Domitian either believed himself a god or wanted everybody else to believe that he was a god. And, and I told you this morning that he would set up these, these gargantuan statues of himself in the middle of, of the cities. So let me show you this. This looks weird, but it is weird. Uh, the head is actually shaped that way. This is what's left of the giant statue of Domitian from Ephesus, the city of Ephesus. All right? So when John is writing to the church at Ephesus. These are the people who were being forced to bow down to this statue. You understand? Does this make it real? This is the statue. This is just the head and just the arm. But you get a sense of how big this was? If I were standing here, I would probably be about, about this. this. This arm is more than, this is about six feet tall right here. So this is a, a, a ginormous statue. And this was the way Domitian wanted you to see him. Now somebody along the way, you know, took their gun and shot his nose off. But, but originally there would have been a nose there. But notice that he looks perfect. He looks strong. You can just imagine what the rest of his body would have been like. He would have looked glorious, and this would have been the tallest, most amazing thing in the whole city. Do you get that? And, and this is Domitian. This is the brutal emperor who demanded that the Christians worship him or die. This is Ephesus. The other thing about Ephesus, though, please bear in mind, is, is this is the church that John planted. Remember at the foot of the cross when John stood there with Mary and Jesus in his last dying moment said what to John? Yeah, behold your mother. In that moment, he sort of asked or gave his mother into John's keeping. So from that point on, from what we know about church history, John traveled with Mary. He literally took care of that older woman until the day that she died. And church tradition tells us that John and Mary went to Ephesus. And that is where John planted the church that we are talking about here, the church at Ephesus. John was their pastor, their founding pastor. And the church, by the time he's writing this letter, has probably been in existence for about 30 years. So this is a church that John knows intimately. He loves these people. He probably baptized most of these people. They're like family to him, and they know him, and they love him. Not only that, this is the church that would have been most profoundly shaped by John's own preaching. Now, what do you know about John's preaching? What do you know about John later in his life? Have you ever read 1 John, 2 John, the epistles? Turn back a couple of pages to 1 John. Let me just remind you the way this man preached. Now, when he walked with Jesus, Jesus once called James and John the sons of thunder. Yeah, the sons of thunder, because they were kind of hot-headed, a, a little bit over-enthusiastic. But by the time John the apostle um, grows deeply in the gospel and in the knowledge of, of Jesus, he becomes what we call the apostle of love. John is the apostle of love. First John chapter 3, verse 11 this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love 
one another. Verse 14, if we love our Christian brothers and sisters, it proves that we have passed from death to life. But a person who has no love is still dead. Anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. This is how John preached. And what's his main theme? Love. It's always love. Turn over to 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. And anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not, say it, know God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our our sins. The beloved apostle preached about love. This was his message. It was the message from the beginning. And apparently by the end of his life, he only had one sermon. And it was just simply love one another, love one another, love one another. So he's their pastor. He planted the church. And this is the message that they've always heard him preach. Now, if John had another emphasis, you'll find it also in his letters. Look back at 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. You must test them to see if the Spirit they have comes from God. For there are many false prophets in the world. And and, and on he goes. Incidentally, verse 3. If someone claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge the truth about Jesus, that person is not from God. Such a person has the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard is coming into the world and indeed is already here. Interestingly, the only Appearance of the word Antichrist is right there. John refers to the Antichrist as a spirit of the Antichrist in his letters, but you won't find that word in the book of Revelation. We'll get to that, but just understand that's where the, the word Antichrist is found. It's right there in the letter of John, but not in the book of Revelation. But anyway, Antichrist, this whole idea is in reference to false prophets. You've got to understand that not everybody who preaches is preaching the gospel. Not everybody who claims to speak for God is speaking for God. And he continued to emphasize to the church, you've got to know how to tell the difference between a real prophet and a fraud. You've got to know the difference between truth and lies. All right? So then, go back to the message in Revelation chapter 2, to the church in Ephesus. I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. Do you hear the echoes of John's emphasis there? He always taught them to know the difference between the truth and the lies. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting, but I have this complaint against you. You have lost your first love okay go back with me emily if you can let's go back to those seven um yeah let's go back to the seven characteristics of the letter and let's walk through the report card uh the the report card for ephesus first off the address uh, where is it what is the address in chapter two to ephesus where do you find it verse one to the angel of the church in ephesus that's the address what then is the uh description i did it again i'm so sorry Uh, The description of the exalted Christ, where do you find that? 
Yeah, yeah, right there. He is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. What are the words of praise to Ephesus? Where do you find them? Verse 2. I know all about your hard work. I've seen your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the false apostles and you have put them out. You've patiently suffered for me without quitting. Those are the words of praise. And then what's next? Words of weakness. What are the words of weakness here? Yeah, you have lost your first love. You have left your first love. Look how far you've fallen. Are there words of warning for this church? Yeah, verse 5, if you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. Yeah, if you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand. Is there a a reward mentioned? Into verse 7. Yeah, to everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life. And then the refrain. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. So what is there to praise about the church at Ephesus? I I know your hard work. I I know how hard you work. You have examined the false prophets. You have rooted out the evildoers. You have worked hard. I have seen your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have hated the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans. We really don't know who the Nicolaitans are, but, but, but obviously they knew who they were. They were evildoers, and the church had opposed them. There's much to praise there, but there's a weakness. And what is the weakness? For all the good that you can say about Ephesus, for all of their hard work and all of their faithfulness, something has happened to the church. And what have they lost? First love. And again, I remind you, they're a church planted and pastored by the apostle of love. But you've left that first love. You've left the love that you had at the first. How does that happen? Be real honest with you. In, in trying to decide which one of these messages to share, I've just really sought the Lord to get a feel for which one of these churches sounded most like Woodburn right now. And I think this sounds most like Woodburn right now. I know your hard work. I, I, I know your patient endurance. There, there's a lot of things to praise. But honestly, if you have a lot of hard work without love, if, if you have a lot of activity without necessarily having the soul of that activity in, in the right place, then all you have is busyness. There, there's busyness. And a church can go through all of the motions of busyness. A church can have a very full schedule of activities from Sunday to Monday to Tuesday to Wednesday. A church can absolutely wear its people out. We can work hard and we can endure and we can continue to push forward and we can grow and we can have big numbers and we can try to plant churches and we can have committee meetings that just meet one after the other, sometimes on top of one another. We can have Bible school. We can send kids to camp. We can do all of these things. Did you understand? We can stay so busy that we don't necessarily pay attention to what we're losing. My heart is heavy for our church right now. I think we're busy. We're really busy doing all of the things that a church should do. 
and our numbers are good. We, we have good numbers in worship, and, and, and sometimes worship's just on fire, but, but I, I feel like we've lost something. Probably the most important thing of all, we, we're just losing it. As, as a congregation, I, I don't think it's your hearts. I don't think your hearts are in the wrong place. I know that you love the Lord, and I know you want to serve the Lord. But do you not see what, what, what I see? There is this spiritual malaise about us, and it's disturbing. You've heard me say by now that we had this fantastic revival time back in the fall. And the great miracle of that revival was not so much what happened, but how quickly the devil snatched it away from us. Our church, I feel like right now, is colder than it's ever been spiritually. Now, people still show up. Everybody's showing up, and, and people have their Bibles, and people are still smiling and, and, and taking care of each other. But it sort of goes back to what Jesus says to the church at, at Ephesus. I, I have this complaint against you. You've lost your first love. Now, now again, that, that's a loaded thing to say because love for Christians goes in two directions. We must love God and love God first, but we also have an obligation to love each other. And especially for the Apostle John, he never divides those things. This is how we know that we have love for God. We have love for each other, he would say. You don't divide them. So when he says to this congregation that he knows and loves, when he says you've lost that love, do you understand? It, it, it cuts both directions. You've lost your original love for God. You don't love each other like you used to. You've stayed on task. You haven't stopped doing, it seems, much of you. You've got more going on than ever. But there's something hollow. There's something missing on the inside. You've got to pay attention to how far you've fallen. Do you understand that? Do you not sense that? I, I am standing in a pulpit after one more Sunday where nobody gets saved in this church. Nobody's getting saved here. That sounds an awful lot like the lampstand being removed. You understand? I mean, if nobody's getting saved here, then what is happening of any purpose or value whatsoever? The fact that all of us showed up? The fact that we can have 700 at church on Easter, but all 700 of us can't lead a single soul to Christ in, in a year? I mean, 700 of us? You, you'd think that we'd have accidentally led somebody to Christ, accidentally brought somebody in. Look at the empty seats that they speak against us. The baptistry's dry as a bone. Do you care? Do you think about it? Or do you just fall into that pattern of it? As long as I'm showing up, as long as we're meeting, and as long as we keep the lights on, we must be doing okay. This is not what Jesus says to the church here. I know your hard work. I know you're busy. I know your patient endurance. I know the good things you're doing. But you've still lost something critical, something essential to the soul of the church. You've lost the love you had at the first. I don't only think it's Woodburn Baptist. I think it's the church in America. Don't lose the irony of what we experienced this morning. We met and prayed for an amazing man. Sam Malenga is, is truly an amazing man. And, and we are honored to have a man like Sam Malenga in, in our midst. 
He's, he, he's an amazing man. Don't lose sight of how important he is. Uh, vice president of his denomination in Zimbabwe, church planter, all through Zimbabwe, planted a church in London, England, still thriving, uh, recruited by NAM to go and plant churches in Seattle. This man is on fire. He's, he, he's amazing. However, he's a man from Zimbabwe called by God to be a missionary in the United States. I mean, my whole life, I've thought of the United States as, as like the country that sent the missionaries to Africa, you know, the, the country that sends missionaries around the world. Do you not understand what's happening, how the world has changed, how the church in the United States has changed? I, I mean, we can nod our heads and say, yeah, that, that's really something, but, but something sort of cries out in my heart that when I find out that a man from Zimbabwe is going to plant churches in Seattle, Washington, I just want to say, isn't Woodburn closer to Seattle? I mean, I know Seattle, Washington sounds like a long way off, but aren't we closer? Isn't that somehow more our responsibility than his? I'm not questioning God's call. Again, God has called an amazing man in San Malanga, but something dreadful is happening in the church in the United States that we can't manage to plant churches in our own cities. That a city like Seattle is so desperately, desperately empty of the church and of the gospel. It's not that we need more churches. We just need churches there. It's empty. If you don't repent, Jesus says, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. I feel like that's a word for the church in the United States. And dangerously, perhaps a word for us. Look at how far you've fallen. You've left your first love. How do we get it back? How do you get that back? The, the first love, the enthusiasm that comes when the gospel's new, that passion that comes when the church and our hearts are revived. If we lost it, certainly we can get it back. How do you get it back? Again, the, the answer's in the word. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If, if you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. Did you find it? Did you see it? Turn back to me. Do the works you did at first. Simple principle tonight. To have the love you once had, you must do the things you once did. It's not complicated. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. To have the love you once had, you must do the things you once did. If, if I pulled any one of you aside and, and asked, if we were having this as a personal conversation, you'd probably say, Brother Tim, you're talking to me. I, I know that I don't have the passion I once had for Christ. I, I know that I've fallen away. I, I know that I've lost my first love. And I would say to you, well, well, tell me, was there a time in your life when you felt closer? Was there a time in your life when you felt on fire and you felt that passion and that, and that, that, that power of first love? Was there a time? And you'd say, yeah, there was. And I would say, tell me about that time. 
And then what would you tell me? You would say, well, well, that was a time in my life when maybe the kids were smaller, and, and every single morning I would get up extra early, and I spent time in the Word, and I worked through Bethmore studies, or, or, or I would just spend time in the Word and in prayer every single morning, and there was that time in my life when I was just present for the Lord every day in the Word. I had a man in our church tell me one day, he said, you know, I, I feel so cold, I feel so far away. And I said, tell me, was there a time when you felt closer? And he said, yeah, when I served. I mean, this was a guy who used to do a lot of things at church and now does nothing. And, and he knows I, I was closer. I, I felt that when I served, but look how far you've fallen. It's not complicated. To have the love you once had, you must do the things you once did. Revival in the fall was good. Y'all remember what we did? We prayed. We prayed our guts out. We prayed for 24 hours a day for seven days. We just prayed. God moved. We had men who were meeting before work every single morning, praying through the Psalms and singing horribly every morning. And God moved. When we stopped doing those things, we lost something. To have the love you once had, you've got to do the things you once did. I guess it all depends on how desperately we want him. The churches are symbolized as lampstands because the church is supposed to bear light in the world. You understand? And if the love is gone, if the passion is gone, it's like somebody turns out the light. It just feels like somebody turned out the light around here. Do you not want that back? Do you not want to love him like you used to love him? Do you not want to serve him like you used to serve him? Do you not want to be a church that burns brightly for him? If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lamps from its place among the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Let anyone with ears to hear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Any final thoughts? Anything? They're all that good. Read through them this week. Again, uh, Ephesus is followed by Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. And then we pick up in chapter 4 next week. This is the good word of God. It's the book of Revelation. We've neglected it. We often feel like we can't read it and understand it. In my experience, it's not the problem at all. The problem is that I understand it all too well. And it doesn't always have an encouraging word to speak. For those of us who have fallen from a height, lost our first love. 
Let's be dismissed with a word of prayer. Will you stand together and let's pray? Jesus, it may seem like we have left you, but you have not left us. In John's great vision of you, O Jesus, there you stand in the middle of your churches, holding the angels of the churches in your hand, and not one of them is lost. We know, Lord, that if we see you in glory tonight, you are standing with us and near us. You have not left us. And you still, Lord, long to see light shining from Woodburn Baptist Church. Lord Jesus, let us be that golden lampstand in the world, here in the place where you've planted us. Yes, Jesus, we're busy. We are the busiest people you can ever know. Oh, Lord Jesus, we put so many miles on our cars. We eat every meal in the car. Our children are involved and over-involved. We are extended and overextended. We don't have a minute to think or breathe. And somehow, Lord Jesus, we have been deceived into thinking that all of that busyness ends up adds up to doing your will. Help us to notice that the busyness has this horrible tendency to paralyze our hearts. Lord, our hearts don't feel for you and for others the way they used to. And Lord Jesus, we desperately want that love that we have known in the past, that love that we had at the first. Jesus, will you help us to turn back to you as a church? Will you help us to do the things we once did? Will you help us, Lord, to shine brightly as your lampstand in this dark world? Jesus, if the star in your hand is the pastor at Woodburn, then hold this man and never let him go. I am not worthy, and I cannot do this without your power. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us and for standing beside us and holding us in your hand. May we love deeply and burn brightly for you. We pray these things in your name and for your glory.